Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. In this episode of When Football Was Football, we'll tackle, so to speak, a trio of players from the Chicago Bears that you may have never heard about. After all, they played nearly a century ago, and except for one, never really received much public or lasting acclaim. Throughout the years, the National Football League has seen its share of rogues, complainers, whiners, and personality problems among its players. But we'll just call these guys simply a bunch of characters. Each brought something different to the Bears, and all were valuable in their own distinct way, but all were under the watchful eye of none other than team owner and coach George Hellas. Ironically, all three were on the field for the Bears during one of the most groundbreaking games ever played in the NFL, and all three were comfortable on the gridiron as well as in the ring. We'll start with a left-handed halfback named John Bull During, who was born on November 6, 1909. Bull attended West Division High School in Milwaukee before heading west to attend Santa Ana College in California. Things didn't work out well there for During, as the Santa Ana Register newspaper later reported. Big John never cracked a book all the time he was here, and he was a hopeless flunk out at the end of his term, failing to make a single credit. So, after stints at the Kentucky Military Institute and the Illinois Military Institute, During was expected to enroll as a sophomore at the University of Wisconsin in 1932. However, the Capital Times in Wisconsin reported that During was rated as one of the best prep gritters ever turned out in Wisconsin, but it was learned that he had failed to pass entrance examinations. And so, During wandered down to Chicago, where Bears coach George Hell assigned the big 220-pound halfback on November 11, 1932. In those days, the halfbacks did a great deal of passing on offense, and that was what impressed Hallis. During could throw the ball very far, extremely far, and with accuracy. But how far? The San Francisco Examiner once wrote about the Bears enduring. It said, they had in their ranks the greatest left-handed passer in the game, John During, who can throw a football 80 yards. But throwing a forward pass was not During's only talent, according to the Los Angeles Daily News, which said, The Bears boast a halfback named John During who can pass the porker 100 yards, and he is the only gritter in the world who can toss him from behind his back for 60 yards. Of course, we here on the Sports History Network wanted to find out if any of these tall tales were true. Could someone accurately throw a football 60 yards behind his back? In the book, What a Game They Played, author Richard Whittingham shared a story about During from Luke Johnsos, an end for the Bears in the 1930s, who said, Bull took a lateral and started out towards the sidelines. He was supposed to throw a long pass to me, but he was in trouble. The defense was all over him. 
He didn't even have room to raise his arm to pass. I looked away, figuring the play had failed. Then I happened to look up and, and there, coming straight into my hands, was the ball. I was so surprised, I dropped it. As we were walking to the dressing room later, I asked him how he got rid of the ball. Well, they were rushing me, so I threw it behind my back, said During. And that's what he had done, thrown the ball behind his back, 40 yards, right into my hands. Author Howard Roberts edits the legend in his book called The Chicago Bears when he stated, During never threw the ball in the game as far as he could for the obvious reason that no one had time to run far enough down the field to catch it. In practice one day, the Bears swear he sent a football careening through the air from one goal line to the opposite 10-yard line, a 90-yard pass. Well, unfortunately, while Bull lasted six seasons in the NFL, including one with Pittsburgh, his career numbers of 627 passing yards and seven touchdowns reflected that he was rarely on the field for the Bears. But George Hellas felt that he was valuable and even put up with some memorable experiences with Bull. Once, Hellas noticed that Bull had missed an evening team meeting, so Hellas asked him the next day when they met. He just said, Bull, what happened to you last night? Bull responded by saying, George, you say the same things over and over and over, so I just went to the movies. During's NFL career ended after the 1937 season, but he also wrestled professionally and played minor league baseball as a pitcher. In 1938, he caught the eye of manager Bill McKechie of the Cincinnati Reds in spring training, who said, I don't know when I saw a faster ball. I wouldn't believe my eyes until I asked catcher Virgil Davis, and he, and he said I was dead right, honest. I believe he's the finest prospect in all my experience. Well, maybe Bull failed to show up for a team meeting, but it appears that he never made a major league roster and yet continued to toil for semi-pro teams in Wisconsin. Next up, we have a big man to discuss, a really big man. There was nothing small about Lloyd Shorty Burdick, not his size, his appetite, his personality, nor his gifted athletic ability. Burdick, born August 8, 1908, graduated from powerful Morgan Park Military Academy in Chicago after a standout career in football and basketball. For the 1920s, he was a huge lineman, going about six foot five and weighing 230 pounds, which landed Burdick the affectionate nickname from his teammates of Shorty. His outstanding play on the gridiron was just the first stop in a jam-packed athletic career that would take Shorty to acclaim on the gridiron for the national champion University of Illinois football team, and later with the NFL title the Chicago Bears. But there's more. Burdick was also a boxer, a pro wrestler, a musician, a track star, an actor, and a real-life hero who once saved two children from near death. Once in high school, his coach decided to move Burdick to the backfield in the second half of a game played at Cubs Park in Chicago. Burdick scored immediately in a 70-yard scoring run early in the second half. The Southtown Economist newspaper reported, Burdick started on a rampage as soon as the second half was underway by running through the entire Latin team for a touchdown. Burdick, with one more run of 70 yards and another of 45, added 12 more points to the score. Burdick's rushing efforts in the third quarter alone resulted in 185 yards gained on just three carries. 
Burdock was a dependable varsity tackle for coach Robert Zupke at Illinois, including during the 1927 season when the Illini finished 7-0-1 and were declared national champions. Shorty concluded his football career at Illinois with a 6-1-1 mark in 1929, leaving Burdock's teams with an impressive three-year record of 20 wins, two losses, and just two ties. By his senior year, he was becoming as widely known as a wrestler as he was a football player. His reputation on the wrestling match was solidified in 1930 when Burdick was the Big Ten heavyweight champion and then finished in second place in the National Collegiate Association Wrestling Tournament at Penn State. In 1931, Burdick signed with the Chicago Bears and soon earned a starting tackle spot. Once again, Burdick was positioned to be an integral part of a special team because in 1932, the Bears concluded their schedule with a wacky 6-1-6 mark and then defeated the Portsmouth Spartans for the NFL title in a playoff game played indoors at Chicago Stadium. During the 1932 season, Burdick would receive high praise from his teammate Red Grange. In an article in the Saturday Evening Post, Grange showed his respect for Burdick by marveling, picture a fast, trimly built athlete then imagine heavyweight boxing champion Jack Dempsey, two or three inches taller and 50 pounds heavier, and you have Lloyd Burdick. Like Jack Dempsey, Burdick also decided to try boxing. Shorty then knocked out 18 straight opponents and fought to one draw in this brief pugilistic career. Before explaining why he decided to stick with wrestling as his main sport outside of football, he said, I just got tired of having a headache every time an opponent tapped me on the jaw and decided it was made of glass. As I desired to engage in some combative sport, I turned to wrestling. And I'm not sorry either. If that wasn't enough, the big lineman was even selected to play the role of Punches Pilot in a passion play that was produced in Chicago for the 1933 World's Fair with a cast of 300 people. After starting for the Bears for two campaigns in 1933, Burdick found himself as a member of the Cincinnati Reds of the NFL, which was actually a new franchise. Burdick played only the 1933 schedule on the Reds for schedule, where he quickly claimed the starting right tackle spot. On December 27, 1933, Cincinnati announced a blockbuster trade involving Burdick with the Portsmouth Spartans, which sent Burdick to Portsmouth for four players, a bit unusual for that time. Instead, Shorty decided to end his football playing career. Well, maybe the only thing short about Lloyd Shorty Burdick was the amount of time he spent on this earth. Unfortunately, he lost his life in 1945 in an unfortunate train accident at the age of 37. He was a winner at all levels from his undefeated team at Morgan Park Military Academy to his national championship at Illinois to his NFL title with the Chicago Bears. Ultimately, Burdick will be remembered for his big accomplishments, his large statue, and his huge personality. And now we come to the final name on our list of characters, and he's more of a familiar one, lineman George Trafton, center for the Chicago Bears. He was a member of the Staley's Bears from 1920 through 1932, missing just the 1922 season to coach at Northwestern after his playing career at Notre Dame ended. He was a six-time All-Pro, a member of the All-Decade team of the 1920s, and was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1964. Perhaps all we need to know about Trafton is his nickname, The Beast. 
In our discussion today, we'll follow that wild side of Trafton, which was evident both on and off the field. In an earlier episode of When Football Was Football here on the Sports History Network, which can still be accessed on the network, we discussed the NFL's first grudge match between the Staley's and Rock Island in 1920, where Trafton played a key role. Trafton was considered such a villain by the Rock Island fans that Hallis made plans for a star center to exit the field early during the scoreless tie and to take the Staley's portion of the game receipts with him. When Hallis was asked later why he did that, he said, well, because I would be running only for the money with those fans, Trafton would be running for his life. And that sets the stage for our Trafton discussion. Trafton claimed to be good with his fists both on and off the field. Once he was suspended by Hallis for taking on a late night intruder who was sitting on Trafton's car outside a nightclub. Hallis apparently didn't mind the fight itself, but since the altercation took place in the wee hours of the morning, according to police reports, Trafton was caught breaking training rules. Anyway, Trafton loved the nightlife in Chicago and was never reluctant to pursue any drunken barroom challenges. At this point, we're going to call on the Great Red Grange to describe the short-lived pugilistic career of his teammate George Trafton, which began in 1929 with a bout scheduled with Husky Art Shires, a baseball player with the Chicago White Sox. Grange recalled the events in an interview with the Chicago Tribune in 1968. Here's what he said. I actually helped promote it, Grange said. On this night, we were helping Trafton celebrate his birthday. He had never lost a fight in a nightclub. After midnight, someone brought in a copy of the Chicago Tribune. Its big sports story announced that Art Shires, then trying to make some extra bucks in the ring to carry him through the winter, had signed to fight some chump. Trafton snorted, I can beat him with one hand. And we thought, why not? My brother Garland Grange was in the party and he was a neighbor of Jim Mullen, who was the promoter for the Shires bouts. So along about 2 a.m., he called up Mullen. Great, Mullen said, we'll sign the contracts tomorrow. Next day, we'd all forgotten about it for some reason, but not Mullen. And Trafton suddenly remembered when he was offered a $1,000 guarantee for three rounds with Art Shires. A few days later, when Trafton was going through the motions of training, a couple of harsh-looking characters walked into the gym. Who's going to win? One of them asked. Trafton, one of our group, replied. He'd better not, one of them growled. Well, a day or two later, a slick young fellow walked in and asked the same question about who was going to win the fight. My brother Garland replied, well, up until yesterday, we thought Trafton was the guy, and he then told this newcomer about the visitors the day before. Forget them, the guy told us. They'll never bother you again. I'll take care of them. All I want to know is if this fight is on the up and up. If it is, I'll bet on Trafton. We learn later that the young man was Machine Gun Jack McGurn, one of Al Capone's leading henchmen. By the way, Trafton did up winning that battle with Shires, which some called the laugh of the century instead of the fight of the century. But the bout did attract 5,000 spectators, including, it was rumored, Al Capone himself. Trafton continued boxing until making the mistake of fighting talented heavyweight prospect Primo Carnera on March 26, 1930. Trafton was knocked down three times and lasted less than a minute. 
Well, this was the middle of a three first-round knockouts that Carnera won in an eight-day stretch in March of 1930. Eventually, he became the world's heavyweight champion, while Trafton wisely returned to playing pro football. And by the way, as we mentioned, all three of our featured players tonight were members of the NFL champion Chicago Bears in 1932, when the NFL crown was captured during the first NFL game played indoors. We thank you for listening to our podcast of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network. Please join us next time for a review of the NFL's first ever draft, which was held in 1936, and we'll examine why the first player pick never played pro football. Or did he? This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The 2021 Professional Football Researchers Association Convention will be held at the Gold Jacket Lounge at the Pro Football Hall of Fame during the final weekend of June. Convention speakers will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the NFL. The fee for the convention is $50 for members and $100 for non-members. The fee includes admission to the convention and Pro Football Hall of Fame, meals on Friday evening and Saturday afternoon, and free parking. All convention activities are subject to COVID-19 protocols. For more details, Details, click on the 2021 PFRA convention link at profootballresearchers.org. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.